Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. This is your host, Alex, and I am back at it again with another installment in our very, very long eschatology series. Uh, this has been a massive undertaking, as we've mentioned numerous times on this show, but, you know, it, it's, it, it, I think it pays good for us to dig into this type of material, especially with everything that seems to be just going on constantly in the world. It always is raising questions for, you know, are we in the last days? Are we working towards the last days? When is the tribulation going to begin? You know, is there going to be an antichrist that arises? All these kind of things are always questions that seem to be coming into Christians' minds. And so I think it helps to pay tribute to those questions in order for us to present what scripture tells us uh, in a clear and non-biased position. And so, you know, we've been going through this uh, book of Revelation, we've divided it into seven parts. And in each of these seven parts, we're doing essentially three shows in those parts. We're in part four right now. This is uh, episode two of essentially of that part. And we still have about uh, after today's episode, I think 10 more episodes to do. And we want to ensure that we cover all of Scripture. Obviously, we've read through the first 12 chapters of the book of Revelation. We've covered all of that material exclusively. Today, we are going to be looking at chapter 13, and we will see the first and second beast uh, coming here. And then we will actually get into this, uh, what is known as the mark of the beast, um, as we get into this false prophet and that type of agenda. And that is often something that uh, is probably some of the most, um, <clears throat> how do I want to say this? Like, this is some of the most pushed agenda by Christians today, I think. And it's, it, it's this don't take, uh, this, you know, right now it's don't take the Corona vaccination because that's the mark of the beast. They're implanting, um, you know, little, little, uh, chips into your body and then they can track you and 
and then eventually you know, they'll have control over your, all your finances and all this stuff. And so um, it really becomes this r- distortion of scripture. And we're going to try to get into visit some of that and what really is going on here and how can we properly discern what the word of God says versus what emotions and feelings uh, are telling us. So that's going to be today's agenda on the show. Next week, we're going to look at uh, chapter 14. We've got um, quite a bit in 14 to go through. There's a lot of parts broken down in there. Uh, it's 20 verses in that chapter. So we're going to try to go through that. Uh, so I would envision to say that today's episode and next week's episode will be a bit longer. And that's okay. But I do also want to give people a little bit of a warning. I'm going to try my best at keeping this uh, the background noise to a minimum. Uh, I'm recording in my upstairs office just out of convenience for me because I'm going to try and record uh, some episodes kind of uh, in a row to stack up my my bank of episodes basically. And being in my office, I get a little bit of some background noise from the traffic. And so I'm going to try and catch all the loud stuff and get that minimized. But you might occasionally hear a car drive by. So my apologies for that. Normally, when I'm downstairs in my basement, my studio, we don't get any of that. Uh, so just be kind of cognizant that this particular episode in the next few might have some of those in the background. But we, uh, like I said, I'm just recording up here because uh, my bathroom is just down the hall and my kitchen's right there. And I'm trying to do you know enough of these right in a row that way i can have them on tap so i can uh, get through other things uh, that are pressing on my agenda so guys you know if you are stumbling into this podcast for the first time a a big thank you and a welcome to listening to undying light we have been crushing through the last 150 episodes today is 151 and guys because you and all of your support, this is the reason I continue producing content and producing episodes. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you would be so gracious, uh, go out to your favorite uh, platform, whatever it may be, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, you know, Audible, whatever it is, leave us a review, share this podcast with other people. That is the best way we can get visibility and grow this platform. And for those who have left reviews on iTunes, thank you for leaving those reviews because they do help us tremendously. We are currently sitting at, um, I think, 62 or 63 five-star reviews. And so you guys are tremendous supporters, and I am so thankful for that. So uh, we are going to get into the content in just a few minutes. But I do, as I always, want to make sure that everybody who is either new or you know, as a refresher to this show... Uh, understands that we are a listener-supported show. And in being a listener-supported show, obviously, we're on Patreon, and you can join this community for as little as a dollar a month. And doing that, you guys get a ton of perks. I mean, just for instance, as I record the show in a couple of hours, I'm going to do a multi-hour Zoom meeting with my Patreons, and we're going to sit down and just talk about just about anything. We might talk a little bit about uh, eschatology as it relates to this show series. We're going to talk about stuff in the church, probably just ask me anything type questions and just kind of have a general powwow of sorts. And so those are things that, I, you know, I'm very passionate about and trying to connect with my Patreons and, uh, and, and even my fellow church members is they're often invited into these events that I do on the show. We do the biweekly Bible study. And uh, through the summer, that'll change a little bit. But, you know, we, we meet together. 
we go through, we've gone through the most of the entire book of Mark. We're in chapter 14 right now. So we're wrapping up Mark and we should be done with that by the end of summer based upon our scheduling. And then we're going to go into probably one of the epistles. And so we spend a considerable amount of time doing all of this, you know, content because we want to give back to this community who have come alongside us. And so uh, I, I can't thank you guys enough for supporting the show. And again, if you're interested, all the information's in the show notes. You can even reach out to me on, on Instagram or Facebook and chat with me. And, and I would be more than happy to give you, you know, answers and help you seek your uh, conclusions to the questions. So guys, with that said, um, obviously you can still get Undying Light merch. I don't really promote that very often, but you can get Undying Light shirts. Um, I've put different quotes and stuff on the back. We've come up with some different um, Bible verses and different things uh, that are, you know, the people have requested. And so I've made different prints. Um, the next print I think we're going to do for coffee mugs and T-shirts is going to be one that says probably something along the lines of that. His mercies are new each day. Uh, we'll be quoting that out there. Uh, so that's coming soon. And on top of that, you know, to help me in all of this study is Logos Bible Software. So you guys can also get a copy of Logos Bible Software and get a discount by using my promo code Undying Light. Uh, what you have to do is just go to logos.com forward slash Undying Light, and then you can pick from a package there, and you'll get some free books uh, when you sign up for Logos. Uh, you can even just sign up with a free copy. I mean, that's what I started with, and then I've kind of built my library on top of that, and I love it. And I even have it on my phone so I can get my Bible and all my library essentially right there in front of me. So really great for on the go type things helps me grab my answers when I need it instead of having to come back to my laptop every time. So those are my shameless plugs. Guys, again, let's get into the material. We've got a ton of stuff to cover. And uh, it seems like we never have enough time because we always break that hour mark, even though um, we could probably keep going for longer just because the material is so deep. So let's get into it. All right, chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave its power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, and he gave, and he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over to every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has been taken captive in captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is the call for endurance in the faith of saints. All right. 
that is where we are at right now with this uh, chapter. We've got this incredible scene again where the that we now have a beast on top of the dragon that is uh, on, on the show here. Uh, we talked last week about the dragon being Satan and given his authority uh, to pursue the church. And now we see this beast rising out. So when we study Revelation, we need to consistently need to realize that we are not reading future history out of a newspaper, but we're learning the spiritual realities of our present age through visionary prophetic writings. I mean, think about it this way. This is like a book that's been written with all of these images. And in this, they describe all of the things that are happening through the church age, and they often do it through uh, these symbolic writings. We have this beast here, and I really want to illustrate the types of language we use. And this beast that I saw, this is John. He says, was like a leopard. It wasn't really a leopard. Its feet were like a bear. It wasn't really a bear. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. It's not obviously, it doesn't have a lion's mouth. Uh, and then the dragon from chapter 12 gave his power and his throne and great authority to this beast. All right. So oftentimes when we read this particular text, here's what's going to happen out of it. We are going to uh, get in sort of this dispensational mode here real quick. And what we would pull out is the uh, chapter 12 is Satan. We know that. And then this beast would be the Antichrist. And then the second beast that we will get to here at the end of 13 is what we would call the false prophet. The Antichrist will have um, all of this power essentially to bring together in unison the world and the world will essentially worship this person. And then this is where we get the one world religions and all of the things uh, that have come out of this dispensationalist view. And so we have to be very careful with how we approach this text because it can lead into, you know, often some misunderstandings because we could say that, these types of things have been going on for a very long time. Now, remember a few weeks ago when we talked about time and numbers being used in Revelation, uh, the idea or instance of these 42 months or the certain amount of days that uh, John presents us, uh, these are often representations of long periods of time that God is allowing you know, the church to either be tested or allow for certain persecutions to exist, things like that. There's always a purpose behind the numbers. They don't actually or often correlate to a very specific 42 months of time. Now, again, this is going to probably anger uh, some of the dispensationalists out there, but I would also recommend that if you are in that particular camp, I would say more of your hyper dispensationalist people who like are really... Um, holding tight to the um, left behind series. These are the ones that we, you know, we'll have to kind of try and um, have conversations with because those are the ones who will often look at this text and really have such a really drastic uh, understanding of it. While others who may um, read this text, they can see how, some of the things that are going on in this text could often be reflecting to other events in history. 
So it's especially necessary to stress this approach uh, when many Christians today just don't really understand Revelation because it is an extremely confusing text. And sadly, most preachers will not preach from it. So the visions provided by John in Revelation should be familiar uh, to what Jesus has done in the parables, such as the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. An example of the vision of the dragon, the woman and the child in Revelation 12. This dramatization of spiritual warfare and church age should provide an easy to understand mental picture to all Bible believers. This vision shows how Satan failed to destroy Jesus in the first coming, and now Satan vainly rages against the church in anger over his inevitable failure. Now, we've spoken about this a a number of times on prior episodes, and and I think it pays us well to understand the difference that uh, Jesus uses in the parables and, and how this is going on here. So the parables have truth given to them, but that truth is only revealed to those whom God has allowed the truth be, to be revealed to. And case in point is we can look back at Mark chapter 4 and see what Jesus is actually saying about the parables there. And what he tells his disciples when asked about the parables, he says, well, to you, the king, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven have been revealed but to everybody else, I speak in parables. And so to to those who have this mystery kind of uh, given to them, the mysteries of the kingdom, they can understand the parables. But to those who uh, Jesus is speaking and concealing the mysteries of heaven to, he speaks to in parables. And then it just sounds like essentially gibberish. It just it doesn't make sense to him. And so the parables are often filled with rich uh, truth. And, and I think it pays us well to study them and to understand them and to unpack them. But we should also understand, too, that those who do not understand the parables, that is why they don't. And so these parables are actually to disguise or confuse the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus is uh, speaking to. Now, we see correlation between these imageries and these symbolical uh, passages in Revelation, and they can be confusing. You know, here we have all of a sudden, you know, we, we, we have in chapter 12, this beast coming down from heaven. You know, we dis- discerned that it's Satan. Uh, we discern that the woman uh, that is fleeing him is the church. And then we get to this beast now rising out of the sea. I mean, is this literally a beast with 10 horns and seven heads and 10 diadems on its horns and just utterly uh, uttering blasphemies against God all all the time. I mean, verse five says, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So if we were to say that we're going to follow a very rigorous calendar of events, then this beast would rise out and at some period during this quote unquote tribulation is going to be given authority for 42 months to Uh, do its work, and then it's going to be then essentially destroyed, which would be incredibly odd based upon how Scripture is written thus far in the book of Revelation. Uh, So the second principle to remember is that Revelation symbols must be interpreted not from pure speculations about current events, but here's where we get this from. We get it from old the Old Testament and parallels to the Old Testament. An example is seen in the final statement in chapter 12, and he, quote-unquote, the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea, Revelation 12, 17. 
A reader familiar with the Old Testament imagery expects some dreadful evil to appear since the sea is the realm of chaos and rebellion and is a uh, virtual synonym for the abyss of hell. So if you've read through the Old Testament, you can see how this goes back and forth and correlates to each other. Now, we've spoken continuously on there's a lot of connections between Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation, and we will often get other uh, passages from prophets and that have written in reflection to what is being written and revealed to us in Revelation. In fact, I think at one point I said on the show that Ezekiel was such a complex book with all of its sort of symbolic uh, eschatological writings that it wasn't really understood properly until John wrote Revelation. And so we have these these correlations and these throwbacks and these parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we continue to see how these things come together and it helps us to discern. You know, when we talk about these events, you know, this beast, this isn't just pure speculation. This isn't just something that we're uh, whipping out of thin air. But what we are, you know, reading is how is this event happening through the age of the church? And what understanding can we take from the Old Testament in reflection to this? So the Old Testament prophet Daniel revealed, uh, received a vision showing four beasts who represented evil powers in the world. We talked about this when we did the Daniel episode. Uh, these beasts represent the powers of Babylon, uh, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And they would successfully rise in history as Daniel 7, 1 through 8 notes. Each of these kingdoms would cause harm to God's people. And they would ultimately, though, be circulated by Christ. Daniel was told that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. As John presents the beast like Daniel's, he sees him rising slowly out of dark water, describing each part as it breaks the surface. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. Like Daniel's four beasts, which represent imperial Rome, this beast has ten horns. Like the dragon Revelation 12, this beast has seven heads, ten horns, and royal diadems. These parallels connect this beast to the Roman Empire and identify him as a servant who wields Satan's might. Right? So we can quickly go down the line to say that this is not going to be a literal beast rising out of the sea, but in reflection is uh, something that is correlating to what John is experiencing. But many commentators assert that the beast's seven heads correspond to the seven Roman emperors after Augustus Caesar. And then there's the uh, seven um, emperors that followed him, Tiberius, uh, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Vespian, Titus, and Demetrian. This interpretation, though, is not certain since there are others who briefly ruled as emperors in this time period. Uh, this individual, Simon Keistmaker, therefore urges us to see the numbers 10 and 7 as symbolic of completeness and and fullness, indicating the comprehensive power and authority exercised by the beast. Now, these seven heads, though, can be intended simply to identify this piece, this beast, back to what Daniel wrote in chapter seven of his book. Uh, 
Since between them and Daniel's four beasts had seven heads and ten horns, John's own interpretation also emphasizes this general idea of royal dominion and power. As it is written here, and to the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And so we see here very quickly how uh, there's a lot of resemblance in these passages. And so I think it pays us well for us to remember what is truly going on and how John is actually writing this for us to be witnesses to and understanding what is truly going on in this passage. Because again, if we were just to read and write and assume what's happening here at face value, there's going to be a lot of misinterpretations. And we should always pay attention to how the language is written. That way we can come with clear minds and think about what is truly, truly happening. Because I want to ensure that we, you know, come at this with a very unbiased mind and try to engage this conversation and this topic and allow us to um, see what the text is trying to tell us. Because Revelation, again, is an extremely difficult book. Uh, so I think we could quickly assume what is really going on here and understanding how this particular passage is showing us something, you know, a little bit different. Now, what this beast is could be a big task for us to understand or unpack for you. But really, again, what we're going to get here is trying to help us to see, are these literal or are they symbolical of things that are happening? So are they literal beasts, dragon-like uh, things that come out of the water, or are they just something that can be uh, represented in the, the Roman Empire as uh, some interpreters would say, or is it, you know, the Antichrist spirit that seems to be present in amongst the world? Is it world governments that seem to rise up and have this type of power to persecute Christians? Uh, I would probably venture to say it's kind of a collection of all of these. Um, I don't think it's a literal interpretation, but let's look at some of these notes here. It says, uh, first of the two beasts here appearing in ver uh, in in this chapter, this is a terrifying creature that seems to be something of a composite of four beasts that are described back in Daniel 7. Now, remember, we talked about Daniel here a few times on this show already. Those four beasts have uh, representations of the world powers, uh, but these particular beasts seem to be wrapped up in this one. So this could kind of be, you know, some people could say it's the one world order. I don't necessarily think that's what this text is telling us, but I think it is just a, you know, John is interpreting this for us and have and writing this image and describing this. Uh, and I think based upon what he sees is going on in with current Rome. Rome is the world dominating power in his time. And so he can see that this is like, that is his world and that's what he's experiencing. And so this first beast might very well just be the Roman empire. And so uh, when John records this, uh, Caesar was demanding divine titles and honors. And this kind of goes to the uh, the naming, the blaspheming, right? Arrogant names for himself in blasphemous ways, calling himself divine and Lord and God for, for that. And so that is, I think, a clear representation of what John is telling us that is going on with the Roman Empire. 
Caesar is in here telling his people that they should give him this title of being Lord or God or divine or your your lordship or whatever uh, title he wants to try and ascribe to himself. But these are titles that he's digging up and trying to assign to himself. But these are obviously blasphemous to the one who carries the title by definition, and that is Jesus Christ. And so I think it pays us well to understand that, you know, this particular beast might have already passed in a sense of the Roman Empire, but I could also venture to say that it could be a representation or symbolic of other nations that would rise against uh, Christians persecuting them and continuously going after Christians solely on the basis of their religion. Because I think verse five really says it well that this particular, you know, if we were to say uh, this country, this nation, this power, this entity was given authority for a period of time to exercise their dominion over God's people, but also they do so by blaspheming God's name and God's resting, uh, God's dwelling, uh, and and those who dwell in heaven. And so, this particular image is going out to those who, you know, are persecuted. Like you know, for instance, in Soviet Russia. Uh, the Soviet Russia could have been given a pe- period of time to exercise authority and they blaspheming God's name by persecuting Christians and asserting themselves as small gods in the world's eyes. And so uh, I think this passage could be really uh, a representative passage for many things to come in the next 2000 years that John is writing this. So uh, in verse two, we have the dragon essentially giving powers to this beast. Uh, Satan is intended on using this beast for his purpose. He endows him with his own power and authority. This empowerment is only possible because guess what? God allows it. However, since all authority ultimately comes from God, God is allowing Satan to give some of this power to the dragon. Now, mind you, Satan is limited. This dragon uh, that is representative of Satan is limited. And this beast is limited in their power and authority because it can only come by what God has allowed them to give. Now, that I think also plays well into what we read, what we would read in like passages from Job or all these, these other texts where Satan kind of is under the authoritative movement, if you would, of God. God is the one in control of all things. So, uh, if we move on to verse three, this, uh, the beast, obviously one of its heads, one, it says verse three, one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, seemed, we don't know if it's true. We don't, again, a very symbolic passage. Um, this could possibly be a cryptic allusion to the Roman emperor's um, Calagula or Nero, um, because a- according to what is written regarding Nero and his mortal wound was healed and was set forth again near the end of the world in order to that he may practice the mystery of inequality. So we could see some, you know, allusions or small parallels back to some of these Roman empires, uh, emperors. But again, a passage that kind of is not necessary to, I think, understanding the entirety of the text. But I, I do have to say, I you know, reading the Left Behind books, I find it interesting how they jump on this passage because they will say that this is an assassination attempt against the beast. And in that assassination attempt, uh, the beast essentially, or the Antichrist that is alive, heals himself and people applaud him for his power. 
because uh, they, you know, verse four here, they say, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Because they'll say that interpretation is, you know, the Antichrist. And, and as God has given him power to dwell on earth within this confined time of, you know, time period here, they go on to worship him. And, and I think that says a lot today, right? You know, with some of these countries, they may appear to be wounded. I mean, even Germany in World War II, you know, as, as uh, Hitler rose to power um, after Hitler was killed and the World War ended and the surrender of Germany happened, um, will we see another rise of German power? I, I really don't know. I mean, there's a lot of progressive liberal ideology being rolled out of Germany right now. But I think it goes to show that some of these, you know, like, or, or you know, even during the war, Germany might have appeared to be um, on a, a back end of a losing battle and then come around and, and be successful or, you know, continue to wage war. I, I don't know if that's a really good, clear, ex, you know, parallel in this particular passage. Again, like I said, verse three is kind of one of those things that you, you kind of just have to read and just say, you know, could these be an allusion to something that John was seeing within, you know, his short period as if we were to say that the, this beast is particularly the Roman Empire, there possibly is better connections there than trying to say that, you know, this wound is a world power down the road. But I will still stand to the fact that I think this passage is talking not only about the Roman Empire, but other empires that will rise in power against um, the church. And I think that goes back to what verse 12 was saying or uh, chapter 12 was saying with Satan utilizing these beasts to wage war against Christians. So as I said that, you know, once that uh, moral wound is healed, people go on and worship this beast and, uh, and the devil, because essentially, you know, we know that this is a counterfeit of, uh, you know, with the pair of the devil and this beast, is a counterfeit anti-Trinity view. So these two beasts and the devil, they're not, you know, the true Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we have this sort of counterfeit coming on. And that's kind of what we seen again back in chapter 12 last week was that Satan appears here and he's essentially masking himself to have some sort of deity or power or divine essence when he in reality he doesn't. Uh, so let's move on here. So I think we've kind of... Um, concluded essentially what this whole passage I mean, uh, verses five through 10 really just kind of wrap themselves up, you know, that uh, the beast not only blasphemes God, but also slanders those in heaven and the church. We see that so prevalent today. It's everywhere we look, the world is standing uh, basically opposed to Christianity. It doesn't oppose any other religion as strong as it opposes Christianity. If it even opposes any other religion, uh, if he could, this fiend would uh, bedevil the elect beyond the grave, war on the saints and those in heaven, because the authority of Satan has been lent to the beast and he has been given great strength to inflict misery upon God's people. Again, I think that kind of goes to show, especially in the Roman times, uh, people throughout the Roman Empire were required to offer uh, instances to the images of Caesar. And, you know, I think that would be a good indication to say that Caesar might be what John's talking about, but doesn't necessarily have to be what John is 
pointing to entirely. There could be additional nations in that because we see that nations do often stand opposed to Christianity. It's exactly what's happening right now in the United States. Our government opposes Christianity because we are standing for ideologies that are against the fundamental teachings of Christianity. And so we see that this beast essentially is and can still be raging war against uh, against the church. So these verses 1 through 10 here, uh, in order to bolster his attacks against God and his people, the devil enlists the aids of this hideous beast, which represents worldly power and political authority run amok. This scenario invites us to consider some important questions. One, have we ever allowed an authority besides God to determine what is right and wrong for us? Well, that's what the United States is trying to do. They're trying to tell us that, one, you should take the vaccination, uh, no questions asked, and it's for the better upment of the people. Well, is that necessarily right or wrong? Two, that because June is Gay Pride Month, that you should, re- without a shadow of a doubt, give up every sort of religious holding that you have in terms of Christianity and join in the virtue signaling that is going on across the nation and, you know, uh, worship at the altar of this, uh, of this beast, essentially. Have you ever, have we ever obeyed man rather than God? Well, obviously many people do. They worship their celebrity icons, their pro athlete icons. They worship the government, um, and it just goes on to show that the people continuously turn to idols rather than God. Um, and the statement is true. And if this happens, if either one of these questions can be answered to the to the sad effect of them, then these individuals need to seek God's forgiveness in Christ. And that's what I continuously preach on this show is that we preach Christ that he's the only way to salvation and he is, you know, utilizing pastors and podcasters and, you know, some even social media platforms to invite people to believe in him. And he's doing so through the preaching of his word and through the sacraments that you partake in in church. And so uh, for these individuals who, you know, get wrapped up in this type of drama that the world is shoving down your throat. Don't worry, there is still victory at hand. Um, John here records his vision of the beast to warn believers of what to expect, starting with the churches in Asia that face this, uh, the, the Roman ruler of Demetrian. John concludes with three applications. First, our source of hope. Second, our calling and persecution. And third, the victory we win in perseverance and faith. And so our, our source of hope is in Christ. Our calling and persecution is uh, to remain faithful and to continue to be uh, strong in those moments. And obviously the victory we win through perseverance and faith. And so, you know, we can only be as strong as, you know, what we hear and believe. And that belief is given to us by hearing the word preached, as Paul writes in Romans, we continuously are fed our faith through the preaching and hearing of the word. And therefore, we take that opportunity and write that on our hearts and memorize scripture in order to utilize it when the times and, and points of history seem bleak and dark and un, and, and not helpful or hopeful. So, I think it's easy to wrap up this section to say that there is still victory in Christ. Christ is still the victor. That is the theme of this whole series in Revelation. And there is nothing that Satan or this beast can do to usurp that.
So let's get into the second part of chapter 13 here. Um, we get to the second beast. We're going to get into the last few passages here, and we're going to get into this mark of the beast. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and see what we can pull out, starting with verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It's ex- it exercises all authority from the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs it allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even uh, speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding the calculated number of the beast, for its number is of a man, isn't its number, and his number is 666. And so we get to this understanding here of uh, the mark of the beast, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but we're going to get to this false prophet first. And again, um, we're going to kind of give a little bit of prelude to it. But I think oftentimes if you are in that hyper dispensationalist position, this is like red flags or, you know, this is the passage that we see the false prophet come on the scene. He's the one that goes out and creates a world, one world religion. And he does through does so by the authority of the first beast. And they work in unison to deceive the world. And then they make this statue and the statue speaks and kills people who won't worship it. And this prophet has some, looks like some powers can bring down fire from heaven. Uh, and, and really, okay. So, <laughs> I mean, we, we get back into these symbolical type moments. And I think it goes back to saying the, um, you know, passage of the two witnesses that we talked about and how they had these certain powers. And so we'll, we'll try to get through here and, and understand it. Now we get a little bit more here in verses uh, 12 through 14 in regards to this particular wound uh, that uh, this first beast had in one of its heads. It says whose mortal wound was healed. And then it jumps down to the second half of 14 and it says, and it, deceives those who are on earth telling them to make an image of this first beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived so we get a little bit more details here on that particular wound so we might get into that too so if you have ever seen this particular movie the valkyrie it tells the story of major general henning von treskow and colonel Klaus von straufenberg Two principal figures in the German conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. That's what we were talking about a little bit ago on the show. Not this particular series, but Hitler himself. Christians such as Treskoff and Stroffenberg have come to recognize Hitler's beastly evil. And despite an oath of unconditional obedience that they had sworn to him as German supreme leader, Treskow began plotting Hitler's assassination earlier in the war. And in 1941 and 43, he put together murder attempts that failed because of unexpected errors uh, or sudden changes in Hitler's plans. In July 1944, his best attempt on Hitler's life took place when Stroffenberg, a staff officer in high command, placed a briefcase bomb 
right under the dictator's feet. After Stroffenberg left the room, another officer moved the briefcase to the other side of the table, and when the bomb went off, the stout wood of the briefing table saved Hitler's life. Soon after, Stroffenberg and Truskoff were both dead. These two Christians are worthy of admiration for their courage, and we can sympathize with their frustration as God himself seemed to thwart their bloody efforts to remove a tyrant. Yet, if they consulted the book of Revelation more carefully, they might have discovered reasons for God's refusal to help their conspiracy. The Bible does not tell Christians who wage spiritual warfare against satanic powers of tyranny and deceit to respond with their own brand of deceit and terror. We might trust that Truscow and Stroffenberg were justified before God by the atoning blood of Christ, but declaring obedience to Hitler and then using positions of trust to attempt to murder him will find no endorsement in the Bible. In the long run, their achievement was not in killing a monstrous tyrant, but simply in being willing to face death as committed followers of Christ. That such heroic Christians struggle to respond biblically to a satanic beast like Hitler proves the Apostle John's words at the end of chapter 13. Our struggle with the beast and the dragon calls for wisdom. So I kind of wanted to give that little prelude. I thought that was an interesting little note on these texts here because I think it goes to show that, you know, as these two will come out and make themselves known or have been made themselves known through history, is it the Christian's duty to try and usurp that that person or group of people? You know, is it the Christian's? For instance, right now, we would say that there's probably tyranny growing in the United States by our government. Is it the Christian's duty to go and try and stop that? Is it the Christian's duty to try and, for lack of a better word, rewrite history? And the answer I'm going to boldly say is no. Don't go do something like that. Please don't. These individuals have been placed in power for various reasons and will be in power until God has determined them not to be. And so whatever attempts you might make against these powers throughout the course of history will, can often be usurped by other people because God has determined that they will be there for a particular period of time. So this first half of Revelation 13 here shows that Satan is not alone in his warfare against the the church of Christ. Uh, he summons this beast out of the sea and then gives him power to rule on earth. Uh, this first beast represents government tyranny working in the history against the church and Christ. Uh, the second half of the chapter shows that the first beast himself is not even alone. And in fact, he's joined by a second beast here that rises out of the earth. So we have one from the sea, one from the earth. If the sea beast represents tyrannical power of Rome that arrived in Asia out of the sea, then the beast of the earth represents local forces that collaborated with Rome. Now, if this sea beast stands for a vicious tyranny. The land beast is the propagandist who encourages people to worship him. Ha! Sounds familiar like our government and the media. There's always a force, right, when we look at how a lot of these things happen. Um, we have the, the, the false tyrannical government or we have this power that has arisen and is going against the church to try to destroy the church. And then we have, you know, like it's cheerleaders basically cheering it on or trying to do what they can in their power to deceive the people and the masses and the, and the media in the United States for those who live here. Uh, the media is 
has often been caught in falsehoods and negativity uh, in their spins. And so they do everything they can to promote the, the government's position, but not necessarily relay the entire truth to the American people. So when we speak of this false religion, we should refer to this in the broadcast, broadest sense of all ideology. Uh, it supports unbelief and idolatry. Now, Steve uh, Wimshurst sees this beast represented in the communism of Soviet Union. Uh, with its spectacular parades through the Red Square, its party card for privilege. He is Nazism uh, with its Nuremberg rallies and its Hitler youth. The statues of Sudam, which infested Iraq, and its wall posters for Chairman Mayo. We should add to this biased, uh, to this, the biased media in America, which I just covered. Uh, that covers up the horrors of abortion, ceaselessly promotes sexual immorality, and misses no opportunity to heap scorn on Bible-believing Christianity. Now, I really want to emphasize this last bit here because we're in this month in June, and, and, and I used to love the month of June because it's my birthday month. And so, you know, I, I always looked forward to June. One, it's the summer. I'm out of school. And I get to uh, celebrate my birthday with my family and friends. But now it's been taken over by the media and virtue signaling progressive liberals that it's gay pride month. And we get this uh, ideology towards celebrating gay pride. And funny enough that the Bible calls anything prideful to be sin. Yet we're, we're called bigots and hateful, you know, deceived people when we say that marriage is is between a man and a woman. Well, that's what God's word tells us. And so, you know what, if God's word tells us that, then that's what we must stand for. And so, you know, as Steve has kind of written in this like broad perspective, he sees how throughout history, especially in recent history, a lot of these um, beasts and then their rally parties behind them uh, have, have kind of popped up in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany and, and China, Saddam over in Iraq. And now in America, with the media covering up, you know, the horrors of abortion and promoting its sexual immoralities across the platform. I mean, it doesn't take much. If you watch any sort of TV or television show, movies or anything here in the States to see how much sexual immorality is shoved down our throats. I mean, it doesn't take anything. I mean, you could be on any channel and you're bound to get something that promotes sexual immorality. So in describing the second beast, John reports that it had two horns. Uh, he remembers that, that the section of Revelation begins with a vision of the church in the form of two witnesses uh, that bear testimony to Christ in the age. They were slain by the beast, but rise again. Uh, this false prophet is their satanically inspired counterfeit which combats the gospel with subtle philosophies and false religions, and they promote the cause of the beast and the dragon. The second beast exercises all authority that, that the first beast has in its presence and makes earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. And so, again, we get this you know, imagery where we have the, the two witnesses that we talked about back in chapter 11, and... In these two witnesses, they are the church. And then we get the uh, beast and the second beast, which are, you know, essentially those 
that would come against the church, whether it's a tyrannical government or it's essentially cheerleader. And these two, these two beasts have power to wage against the church and they will continue to persecute the church. And, you know, as Revelation 11 states back in chapter 11, that the, the, the two witnesses were killed. And so it might seem like the tyrannical power and control has beaten the church. And we've seen that happen in Germany and in Soviet Russia, that the church has seemingly disappeared, and even in modern China right now. But underneath the surface of everything, the church is flourishing and the gospel is spreading like wildfire and is completely contradicting everything that these two beasts are trying to do in terms of deceiving the masses. But these two, these two beasts will continue to deceive the masses and they will continue to go out and, um, you know, create chaos and disorder and then blame it upon the church. So here in verses 11 and 12, this earth, right, we have noted that this one will arise out of the earth. And so we get this difference scene uh, or counter difference, if you would, to the one out of the sea. And so. That's where we can say that this one on the earth essentially is kind of that cheerleader aspect. It's the one promoting this. And so it's kind of a lot, I wouldn't say lesser power, but it, it's power is different. Uh, it doesn't have ruling power, if you would, as the first beast does. Uh, but it does wield divine power, uh, but it only, in fact, deceives. He are, uh, his are not the true miracles because they are not done in conjunction with sound doctrine. Ironically, this beast imitates the great... Uh, miracles that Elijah performs while proving that Yahweh is the only true God, as 1 Kings 18 tells us. So this beast tries to imitate Elijah and uh, does a few minor things, but, you know, he constantly is pointing towards this first beast, demanding that people worship this first beast. Now, we get into this kind of, uh, you know, discussion of the mark, this mark of the beast. And I'm going to wrap up the show with this. I really want to um I really want to take a, a look at how uh we can uh get into understanding what this passage really does mean. So we can say that this for that the second beast here uh serves the first beast by teaching and deceiving with signs and wonders. <clears throat> and you can probably even say that today with these signs and wonders, it's, you know, we can probably squeeze this whole big scope of technology uh, into these miraculous signs and worshiping of the beast. You know, so you can even say that maybe the beast could be technology in itself. And, you know, the second beast is all of the little apps and things that we, we have that keep ourselves glued to them. I mean, we can probably, again, we can, we can go down the line to say so many different things and, and how these are representative to today's world. But think about how much time you spend on your phone and how much time you spend on social media, uh, how much time you spend in front of the TV and just really reflect on that, you know, for the coming upcoming week, like you know, iPhones, you get that uh, weekly screen time update. No, I mean, I, I usually let my phone kind of sit and with the screen on. And so my screen time is really, really high in comparison to like what my app's life is. But on a weekly basis, you know, it's alarming to see how much time we spend on social media. But, you know, if we were to reflect that, I think it could be another uh, another little parallel, if you would, to what these passages in Revelation are saying. Um, 
but let's get down to this mark, right? So popular end times books describes the mark of the beast as something yet to appear, often a technology to implant a computer trip chip that will control all commerce. Uh, there are abundant reasons to believe, however, that John is referring to a phenomenal comet, a phenomenon common to his own age. Uh, so here we go. I'm going to butcher this word for you, but the Greek word for mark, as in the mark of the beast, is uh, charmanga. I completely destroyed that word, and I apologize to all you Greek theologians out there uh, who can read and write Greek. I can't, and so my pronunciations of some of these terms are ridiculous. And I am not scared to tell you that because I have yet to take any Greek classes in uh, theology, and nobody in my congregation speaks Greek. Therefore, uh, I just have to know how to uh, break the words down and get to a meaning of the word. But pronunciation and speaking it, not necessarily my forte. Uh, this term is used for the emperor's seal on official documents. So in this light, the mark of the beast alludes to his state's political and economic stamp of approval uh, given to those who go along with its religious demands. In the Roman world, slaves are sometimes tattooed on the forehead to mark their ownership. Similarly, the mark, the beast's mark claims those who worship him uh, as his property. Soldiers received marks on the hand to show their allegiance to certain generals. And likewise, the mark of the beast shows one's devotion as a follower. John uses these examples in his own culture to make the point about the mark of the beast involves. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy 6.8 tells God's people to bind God's words on their hands and before their eyes. Uh, the point of which they were to think and act biblically. Likewise, the beast demands not so not so much a tattoo on the forehead, but a mind that thinks the way he says to think. He does not care about brands on the hands so much as deeds and that mimic his own evil ways. So these examples that we see uh, go on to show that the mark of the beast is not something that one accidentally receives. It's not one that you could go out and essentially say, I need this tattoo in order to buy stuff. But the primarily its formal acceptance is a total allegiance to a person or earthly entity, rendering a devotion that only get, that only God deserves to receive. This allegiance uh, will usually be marked with some formal recognition, such as the Nazi armband or special privileges that are earned, uh, such as those given to the Communist Party members in China. A notable example of this is recorded in the inter, intertestimonial book uh, in the Maccabees, Maccabees 3, which recounts how the Egyptian tyrant Plotomy, a, uh, the fourth philosopher, demanded that the Jews offer pagan sacrifices. Those who refused were put to death, and those who relented were branded with this ivy leaf symbol, uh, this Greek god of wine and sensual indulgences. Bearing this mark afforded willing Jews the privileges of worshiping in this uh, Palatomy's realm. So while we can say that receiving this mark is never accidental, the process may be subtle. Uh, the Aristocat officers in Germany just did not walk out and vow unconditional loyalty, loyalty to Adolf Hitler because they admired him. Mainly, they were motivated by patriotism and career ambitions. 
Later, they felt trapped by their oath into committing atrocities that they themselves knew would bring ruin to their country. In American today, businessmen may say that they are selling their souls to the company out of lust for success. Some people fail to profess faith in Christ because of loyalty to family, uh, to the family expectations. And even some youths wear tattoos of street gangs or a rock group that they religiously follow, swearing heart and soul to the gang or brand that they may subscribe to. Ultimately, the mark of the beast involves a choice between the world and Christ. There's an obvious contrast between this mark and the mark that Christ's people received back in chapter 7. There, the suffering servants were, quote-unquote, sealed on their foreheads as the servants of God, having already sought to, uh, have already sought to counterfeit Christ, Satan now parodies God's sealed church with his own mark-bearing legions. So, again, you know, we can go out and say that this can be across many platforms, but essentially it's whatever that we could have that would take the place of God in our lives, whether it's our sports teams, our whatever idols we have, our jobs, our career ambitions, things like that, the gangs that some may belong to, all of these things may require a particular branding. In God's in John's day, the mark of the beast provided another way for perse- for the persecuted believers. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the mark of the beast, and it's a number on its uh, and its name. So the Christians in the Church of uh, Paragum could not join trade guilds without accepting idol worshiping and cultic prostitution. Uh, this particularly meant that Christians there could not hold well paying jobs. Christian businessmen today may be closed down for refusing to fund abortion through their insurance, and Christian military officers may forfeit promotions because they refuse to hide their faith. The point of the beast paints Christians as being disloyal to the government regime because of their higher allegiance to Jesus. And as a result, Christians are forced into this, are forced to the periphery, periphery of public life. They are unable to be elected to office or operate small businesses. And in the ancient world, the emperor certificate was required at the marketplace. The beast might literally reduce believers to starvation. In Revelation 2.9, Jesus said that he was aware of what the people were suffering. I know your tribulation and your poverty, Jesus states, but you are rich. Be faithful unto death, he adds, and I will give you the crown of life. How relevant are these words that so many Christians who lose out in this present world for Christ's sake, but gain an inheritance in the glory with him in the world to come. And so I think it's only relevant for us to say that this is what we can see. Again, we want to allow scripture to paint us this picture as it connects us to other scripture. And in turn, it is the interpreting other passages. In the church letters we see back in Revelation 2, you know, we see that these individuals have experienced intense persecution and are prohibited from buying and selling. And we see that as the context to what John is writing with the Roman Empire, preventing people who don't have the emperor's seal to buy and sell. And therefore, Christians, because they refused such, would essentially starve and die. So John concludes this dramatic chapter with this point of teaching. This calls for wisdom. 
looking back to chapter 12, the vision of the dragon in the church, and then here in chapter 13 with this tyrannical beast aided by his false and beguiling ideology, we see Christians need to be very wise. We must be wise in discerning the difference between true and false prophets by paying careful attention to God's words. And then we must obviously be wise in expecting to pay a price for the faith that we have. So all through Revelation, Jesus has promised salvation, blessings only to those who persevere in faith and overcome spiritual warfare through their witness to him. And so we we need to have this discernment. We must be wise in understanding of what the world is trying to do and how it's trying to control us. And the fact is, oftentimes we can't be deceived even if for a short period of time, but we can be deceived into thinking what we're doing is great. And I think one of the biggest um, flags people in the church right now are waving is the social justice flag where we feel that people are being hindered uh, by some sort of social oppression. And so the church must rise up and help them. And this is another ide- uh, idol that the church, that the world is essentially creating. It's another thing for the church to pursue, which completely takes our eyes off of Jesus and his worship. Uh, so John has this final form of wisdom in the mind in this final verse here, uh, this wisdom that enables Christians to see the enemy for what he is so that he will not be beguiled by his deceits or intimidated by his threats. This entire, the entire Bible bears testimony to God's faithful faithfulness in serving his people from spiritual attacks. So it only pays for us that our wisdom calls us not to shrink back in our witness out of temptation or fear, but to be bold and proclaim it. John makes this point with this well-known and mostly widely contested verse in the chapter. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding the calculated number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Many commentators suppose that this 666 is a coded reference for using uh, this ancient practice known as geometra. Languages such as Greek and Hebrew do not have numbers, so letters were assigned to numerical values. Some single digits, others tens, and, and still others hundreds. This idea that John is enabling us to identify the Antichrist or the first beast because of letters of his name in Greek add up to 666. Using these similar similar systems, Christians in recent years has argued that Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist, since each of his three names uh, had six letters. The American statesman Henry Kissinger was long considered an Antichrist candidate, not only because of his labors for the secular world peace, but also for the letters of his last name add up to 666 in the Greek system. The problem is that the system and this approach, that there's virtually no limit to candidates that would fit this description. And one commentator uh, fancifully made a case for Barney, the children's television figure, uh, because the words cute purple dinosaur yield the uh, calculation of 666. And so we literally could look at almost anything, manipulate it just a little bit, and say that this is the mark of the beast. Oh, COVID-19. That's another big one that uh, hyper-dispensationalists are utilizing today as the mark of the beast, which is, again, uh, absolutely ridiculous. Well, the COVID shot would be the mark, and then the number, the identifying number here is 666. 
So the person most commonly associated, though, with the these numbers is the Roman Emperor Nero. And by translating the name Caesar Nero into Hebrew, the letters add up correctly so that some scholars see John 666 as a code name for Nero. Uh, the point is that, like him, the beast will be popular but depraved, depa- uh, but depraved despite who launches violent persecutions against Christians. The problem with these uh, with this particular approach is that John's readers being Greek converts did not likely speak Hebrew, which this theory requires. Moreover, one must slightly misspell Caesar for the numbers to add up. These factors make Nero, the Nero theory slightly unlikely. So we can try to go down the line here and try to figure out or calculate this number. And, you know, I think it would just be essentially it, we're not going to get to that particular person. Uh, I think it just requires us to have wisdom, as John states, to see how these three, Satan, the first beast and the second beast, you know, ascribe to this unholy Trinity, uh, anti-Trinity group. And they try to mask themselves as being divine and holy, and they are not. And so as God's number is being holy is 777, some would argue that this number 666 would point us to this anti-Trinity group as being the unholy version of, you know, the the holy trinity. And so we get this idea, and again, there's probably many, many more interpretations to this text, but... Many just kind of really, they just don't have a lot of substance to it. And so uh, we can try and get out to um, all these different types of calculations and things like that. But I feel like that would be doing, you know, the text a little bit more disservice than what it needs to be done. But I think for what we've read and looked at these last two weeks, we can safely assume that this is an anti-Trinitarian group that will come in and try to deceive Christians and destroy the church. And obviously, we know that is an unholy position to take, and therefore the number is not going to be holy in its completeness as God is with his 777 number. So we're going to go ahead and wrap the show on that, Mark. Uh, we'll get into the Lamb and the 144,000 uh, on next week's episode, and we will work through... Um, what is going on here? And then in uh, two weeks from now, we'll get into the seven bulls of God's wrath uh, as we enter part five. So we have next week's episode. We'll wrap up part four and then we get to part five. So we're moving along. We got a lot accomplished thus far, but we still have a ways to go. So stay tuned with us as we continue to unpack and work through this text. And guys, I hope you guys are enjoying it so far. I know I have. It's been a lot to learn, and it helps me to read Revelation and actually understand the text a little bit better. And I really pray that you guys have utilized this opportunity to read and study along with me as we've looked at various commentaries and study Bibles on this journey thus far. And I hope you guys are tracking along with me. And again, feel free to go back and re-listen to episodes or check out ones that you've missed. The entire library collection, all 151 episodes are across all platforms. So whatever you're listening to on, you can go back and listen to even the very first episode of Undying Light. So with that, I'm going to conclude the show, guys. I am so thankful that you have tuned in and listened, and I can't wait to see you guys next week. Until then, God bless, and may Christ's blessings go with you.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.